Springbok legend and former prop, Kurbis Fasahi is my guest on Front Row Rugby today. Kurbis, welcome. Morning, good morning. Uh, thanks to join you this morning. Before we begin our conversation, let's take a look at the trivia question for this week. In 2005, the Springboks scored a record win by 134 points to 3. Who were the opponents that day? If you know the answer to the question, you can put it in the comment section down below. We'll also find out if Kurbis knows the answer to that question, but we'll do that at the end of our conversation. Kurbis, I'd like to go back to 1999 when you made your debut for the Springboks. How exciting was that moment? Well, it was a... Um, it wasn't a, a spectacular first first uh, uh, game as it was against Italy, and Italy was not a, the opponents that it was uh, that, that they are today. But uh, and I think the shine was also taken off a little bit because the week before um, Nick Mallet split the the teams or the squad into two teams, and it was probably one of the first times that any coach did that something like that. And so we played one team played the one week and another team the next and I was fortunate to be captained by Gary Teichman that day and you know it was a big big victory in Port Elizabeth um, and it was a very good start you know very good start to my career. After that two test series against Italy there was a very strange anomaly where we went and played against Wales in Cardiff in June uh, usually we would play them there in November. Uh, I've heard stories about Rion Oberholzer coming and giving you guys a tongue lashing before that match. Uh, it also resulted in us losing against the Welsh for the first time. What can you tell me about that? There's something that I saved for my book, Peter, but uh, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's now well, well known. Um, it was the... Um, it, it's something that I always share with the Welsh uh, friends that I have over here, but yeah, we were invited for the the inauguration of at that stage it was called the Millennium Stadium, um, and it was it was obviously a massive event for the Welsh. And I think the we as Springboks didn't appreciate the enormity of it at that stage. But um, like you say, the night before we were called in um, into a team meeting after dinner which was quite strange at that stage because normally you will be left to your own devices to, to prepare yourself for the next day. And um, I think the, the thing that started it off was that there was a, a, a call that came in from South in South Africa telling the, giving notification to Nick Mallet and the team that they need to change the lineup for the team um, based on quota. Um, I, I don't want to go into the specifics now because I, uh, I'm, I'm more concerned that I won't get the names right. Um, but I know that it, it, it concerns Stefan de Blanche on the wing and the consideration of, of, of uh, 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 a player of color. But also just want to say at that stage, and I want to categorically say it, is that I felt that all the players that were in that squad, you know, that included uh, Brayton Polser and... Um, John Kaiser and so on, they were all their merit. Um, I think we, everybody believed it, it, it to be that way. But anyway, after this was announced, um, I'm not sure if they gave the guys a chance to comment on it. Obviously, I was quite, it was, my third, it was about my third test, so I didn't see myself fit to, 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 to get up and say anything about it. But um, some of the guys got up 
And, you know, the bottom line is that the guys who got up didn't get selected for South Africa for a number of tests after that. And I think it, it, it had a very bitter taste in the mouth. Um, specifically, I mean, I was playing with Robbie Kempson at, at Western Province. I had a very good run with him at, at Western Province in the Stormers that year. He was one of the guys that basically the guys were just making a point that they want guys to play um, from all colors, but it, they need to also go do the hard yards in, in, in making the, the lineup. And it was the very early stages of this, and unfortunately, some people played a price for it. I think the best uh, story for me from the whole thing was that uh, Kreiner Otto got up right at the end of the meeting after everybody was slated. Um, for, 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 for giving an indifferent opinion. And Kroner said he just wants to know, um, yeah, I think the background to this as well is they, they said something about its vision 2005 to have 10 quota players in the team. And so um, uh, Kroner Otto was a, quite a funny guy and he got up at the end and after, you, you have to understand that it was so quiet in that room. It was, the atmosphere was, was uh, uh, um, you know, it was everybody was just couldn't believe what was going on, and he just broke it all up by saying he just wants to know what his vision two thousand ten for the the quota for white players in the team, and um, he also didn't get it selected for 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 the next game. So I think the, the I think the media even was unaware of what happened there. Um, but it had a devastating impact on the team for the next day. Hey, if you're enjoying this video, why not hit the like button? And you, you speak about a devastating impact. If we look at the results that came, as we know, that first defeat to the Welsh uh, ever in Springbok history, and that was followed by some heavy defeats in the Tri-Nations. Uh, we suffered uh, quite badly in Australia and in New Zealand. I know that there was the 28-0 uh, in Dunedin. Gary Teichman soon after that was dropped as the Springbok captain uh, on the eve of the Rugby World Cup 1999. I'd like to hear from you, Quibus. Going to the World Cup in '99, what was the atmosphere actually like in the Bok camp? I mean, I think the what is important to understand as as background to it as well is that um, there were two um, there were definitely two types of players in the the squad at that stage. It's not it were not two camps. It was just two type of players. It was the players who played in the series of games that led to the 18 um, uh, unbeaten games under Nick up until the end of 1998. And then you had a different group of players, just type of players that was not that, um, and, and a lot of them were Stormers players because the Stormers had a very good 99 Super Rugby campaign. But the guys who were, were playing in those unbeaten games under Gary was very loyal to him, and um, I believe that you know the, the 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 fact that Gary was not selected to go to the World Cup. Um, I think there's there's no doubt about it that it was the wrong decision, and it caused a division. But it especially affected the players that played with Gary um, in all those tests and 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 the camaraderie that they had. It was exceptionally difficult. I mean, I shared a room with, um, I was very fortunate to share a room with Andre Fenter. And, um, you know, although he was not a shark, the same with 
Russi was not a shark as such. Um, they were, it, it caused a lot of issues. And I think it also caused uh, a number of guys um, like Henry Honeyball, that was, that was very big leaders, but also close, you know, close friends and, and long-time teammates of, of Gary to be quite embittered um, in that. And I mean, to this day, I also believe if Gary Teichman was captain and played, we would have won the, the semi-final against Australia um, because there was massive defensive errors errors made in, in, in that game. And there was a bit of leadership required in that game that that, that was was lacking that I believe he would have brought to, to the team. And I don't think that, you know, nobody, nobody denies that even from the coaching perspective today. Um, but hindsight is exact science. Absolutely. So, Kourbis, I had Peter Miller on the show uh, a few episodes ago, and I'm going to put a link up to that here if anybody wants to go and watch that. And Peter told me that during the pool stage at that World Cup, where we had uh, Scotland, uh, Uruguay, and Spain, uh, and we were playing in Edinburgh and Glasgow, he said that the guys didn't really feel that they were at a Rugby World Cup. And it was only when you guys moved to Paris for the quarterfinals and then Twickenham that you really began to feel that you were actually part of this big tournament. Would you go along with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, Edinburgh was nice. You know, we had a couple of good nights out, um, but it was very isolated. And um, I would agree 100%. It was only Paris when we really hit the strides. And, um, but yeah, it was a very isolated uh, setup. I, I'm not also aware, you know, it's, it's such a such a long time ago but i can't remember that there were any other games played up up there you know in that time period as well um i know that we went to this very grim um shopping center where we played temple and bowling in glasgow you know because we were asking questions i would say Fair enough. Okay, so let's talk about moving to Paris for that quarterfinal against uh, England, the Yanni de Beer show, uh, as it is now famously remembered. How much of that was actually planned in the week leading up to the match? Look, I think the the the, the planning for for that was, in my opinion, it happened quite late on the Wednesday training. Um, it may even be the Thursday training because I, as I remember correctly, that game was played on a Sunday. So it would have been on the Thursday, and I still remember it was like it felt like a we were practicing in like a park, you know, typically what you get in France, like a park set up uh, with rugby fields in a park, a small training ground. It's also the first time I remember seeing toilets where it's just a hole in the ground, you know, in the concrete, you know, with no no toilet, real toilet being placed. It's, it's the memories that I have from that day, and. Um, I remember this this discussion. Um, you know, you just mentioned Peter Miller, but I think today there's there's it's it was the Yanni de Beer show, but I think there's a couple of elements to it that that lent itself where a couple of you know, and I remember that it was um, Brendan Fenter and and Rassi Erasmus also making some big inputs at that stage in, in the decision to come to, to, to come to the decision to, to follow that strategy. Um, in that we had a very dominant pack of forwards. Um, and if you go and look at it, most of those were scored from scrums with a heat up from Peter Miller. And the thing is, you know, to stop Peter Miller from a right shoulder scrum, heating it up flat, um, it's, you can bring him down, but it's like how much ground have you you lost in the process, and um, 
And I think that 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 was a, a very smart strategy, you know, that was devised quite late. The background to it is also to remember for that game is that the English went into that game with the strategy to outrun us. They believed that you know we were heavy and 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 our pocket forge was big and um, they've made this, this 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 mistake a couple of times against South Africa over the course of the last uh, twenty years as as well. But they selected Greening um, at hooker. Um, instead of Cockrell, and they also selected um, they selected uh, uh, um, I can't remember what it was. I think they dropped Julian White for um, guy played for Gloucester. Um, but yeah, so they they tried to outrun us, and uh, the consequences was that they were in effect, you know. Quite ineffectual in all the set piece, um, which which really laid the foundation for that. And then a week later, that semi final against the Wallabies. I know you touched on it earlier. How much of a sucker punch was it to lose that match in extra time? I did. I haven't watched that match for twenty years. Um, I've got this uh, nasty streak where when I go to the gym here in my in 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 St Albans, I when I'm on the um, uh, elliptical or on the um, the running machines, I watch YouTube videos on it on this big screen, and then I always leave it for them. And that's always like famous wins of the Springbok against the English. I just leave it there for the next person to to be reminded of it. But <laughs> I actually came across it only about six months ago, and I watched the game again, the, that semi final. And you know, it's sometimes we forget. Uh, you know, less than ten minutes from the end of overtime, um, we were we were ahead in that game. Um, also, in large parts, um, to to Yanni De Beers' um, kicking boot, and you know, he had um, he showed a lot of steel in the way that he approached it. Um, but I think you know, in in my you know the these things are out there. My 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 greatest team of all time is. Is would they have Timmy Horan at inside center, and he was just devastatingly effective that day. He broke the line at the back of the lineouts um, so many times that we were on the back foot quite a bit from that. Um, and then obviously Larkham had his fluke of, of kicking a ball that was heading, in my view, close to the the, the flag on the touchline, and then just started boogering in towards the post and. Uh, and 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 he kicked it, you know. And maybe, you know, it was quite devastating. It was also just, uh, I think that that night, uh, um, the next day was my birthday, and um, we had such a good run. Um, but yeah, it, I think it was. I think if we hindsight is exact science, but you know, if we went through that day, um, I believe that we had a good chance to win that World Cup against against France. Yeah, I guess we'll just never know, hey. So. You stayed in the side uh, for the next couple of years. Nick Mallett was then replaced by Harry Fulyun. Uh, I'm keen to hear from you, Kubis. Um, what would you say are the differences that you noticed between the way Nick Mallett did things and the way uh, Harry Fulyun approached it? Look, I think if you, if, you, if you take Harry first, Harry's strategy from the start of his coaching career and, and the way that he um, were able to to coach three different provincial sides to curry cup finals 
was that he was on the front end of the technological and physiological side of rugby. So he had a trainer, Chris van Lochenberg, that was ahead of the rest of the trainers in the competition. And, 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 and I think that played a, a significant role. Because of that, also, eventually, when he got to Stormers, he had the ability to, to bring some big names with him um, that was on top of their game at that stage, like Dick Muir um, and, and, and James Small, but also had great influence on, on players that were tough to manage, uh, <laughs> if I could put it that way. Christian Stewart would be in, in that bracket. But, um, but in, I think in, in coaching strategy, it's quite an aloof, um, surgical way of coaching where Nick was very much involved. You know, Nick is the only coach that I've ever had that would get into fitness sessions with um, players, do rowing sessions with them. You know, he would always be open to play golf with the guys and he engaged fully, you know, over dinners with, with, with players, getting into debates about strategy, etc. And he, because he's, he's an intelligent man and an intelligent rugby thinker he was he was very comfortable in getting into a argument or debate about a principle of what, what he wanted to pursue and all the players respected him for that um but i think when it comes to man management um i would say that both of them were quite open to players in the way that they want to go about it which was at that stage quite an enlightening compared to i would almost say the the old school way of um, a clothes shop, you know, you arrive on the day and your shirt are handed out to you, blue shirt in the A team and green shirt in the B team, and there's no explanation for it. I think they, they were quite instrumental in changing that engagement with players. Harry Fulhoun was gone uh, by the beginning of 2002. You didn't play in 02. You came back into the team uh, in 2003. Was that because of injury? Yeah, I mean, that my career was massively impacted by first in in um at the end of in october 2000 i dislocated my my wrist a lunar dislocation that took me out for eight and nine months and that was also the the the, the reason why i had that um substance abuse case against me which was you know also it, it was actually at right at the same time um that that had to be be resolved at that stage and then i came back and then in 2000 so that took me out the whole of the Tri Nations. I think I played my first game back against the All Blacks in 2001. And in 2002, Curry Cup, I dislocated my right ankle, um, which was very severe. Syndesmosis, my tibia and my fibia um, split from each other. And I had all ligaments both sides of my foot. So that took me out another nine months. Um, so it was, it was quite a tough, it, it, it was quite tough sessions that um, to be out of the game probably in my prime, um, but it also, it probably also lengthened my career to the point that I played until I was 36 in the end. And then in 2003, you were involved in those June test matches, but then that was also the end of your Springbok career. I, I mean, we're going to talk about it. I, I just want to speculate. I know that come Staldraut came uh, soon after uh, those June test matches. Um, why did your Springbok career end uh, at that point? Well, I would say, firstly, I would say that I, I came out of that 2002 um, where I, I dislocated my ankle. Um, I, I 
I was on the fastest possible track to get it right. But I was probably not on par yet at that stage. Um, and I needed another two or three months, um, which could have, which if you had a bit of patience, I, I, I could have got there, which I later proved in my career, you know, with the way that I performed at Saracens that I wasn't off, off the boil. It was just a recovery that time that I required. Um, but I'll be very honest with you that I didn't sit around the same table with um, Rudolf Strali. I thought he was like three notches below what a Springbok coach should be. And I probably said to him as much in a, in a team session one day. Um, I think the, the thing that still need to be known to this day is that um, they came into a session and, you know, with my financial background, they made a proposal to the team to, in June of 2003, for everybody to go and risk. It means to not have a salary or on a contract until they go to the World Cup in, in October that year. And um, they wanted everybody to play and risk. They believe that that's the way to get the best out of the players. And I stood up with a number of other players that were all guys that have got financial um, guys with university education, and they thought that may, we can make the point, almost similar to 1999, that, and I, I stood up not for myself. I, I was working for PricewaterhouseCoopers as a chartered accountant. I didn't need to play rugby for, for, for that, but I stood up and said, you know, that it is absolute nonsense and it's unprofessional and it's, uh, um, it's a disgrace, actually, to offer something like that. But the problem was that Strali made a deal with the four captains of the region to secure contracts for them at that stage and for them to convince each their own contingent of, um, you know, the Stormers, the Lions, the Sharks and the, I think it was the Cats at that stage, whatever, to um, the Bulls, to, to, to convince their players to go off contract. Now, that was also, in my view, a collusion with the Rand Oberosa and everybody else involved. And I just didn't have time for people that operated like that. And to this day, you know, I don't think it's said enough. And I, I don't care to say it in, in, on a YouTube video like this, is that um, the way that Rand Oberosa and Rudolf Strali um, ran after Safu and what they tried to do there to save money to Safu, uh, you know, taking risk on people's lives. And if you consider what how hard the current south african rugby union is trying to look after the players is just chalk and cheese and um, anyway the result of that was that each player that stood up there that included uh, it included um peter rousseau i think it was andre snayman and it um i'd rather stay accurate to to the facts um was all dropped after that day. Um, didn't want to be part of the club. And I basically predicted that this type of manipulation was going to lead to other problems. And also it's going to not be in the interest of South African rugby. And unfortunately I was proven right. And I feel, I feel very sorry for the guys that were in the leadership of that team because they were all manipulated um, in a very bad way. And after that, I said, look, you know, after that Nandrulone controversy where I was innocently pursued and then this, I said I didn't want to have anything to do with South African rugby and uh, I actually didn't pursue to go to overseas as well. I, I was 30 years old in um, October 2003 and I said, you know, that's the end of me. I, I'm done with rugby. 
and uh, then then there was other opportunities on my uh, on my timeline. It really was a dark period in South African rugby as well, wasn't it? Um, so, so Kubis, let's uh, let's try and lighten the mood a little bit. Um, something that our viewers love to hear. Who was your toughest opponent? I would say that probably in each stage of my career, um, it, it, it needs to be recognised that that the the the, the 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 challenge that you have in the front row. I mean, I was one of the youngest. Um, tight head props ever for, for 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 Stellenbosch University Rugby. And I remember, you know, as a 19-year-old first team prop in the time that you were still playing games against False Bay and um, Marmersbury, Mariasburg and places like that, when you end up scrummaging against a guy that's 36 years old, <laughs> those step-ups were um unbelievably unbelievably tough you know i don't even remember what the guy's name was but all i remember was having blood you know like bloodshot skin um and you know massive scabs for two weeks after each time i played against these uh barda, you know and um but i would say that the argentinians that i played against my whole career um you know Frederico mendez is, is remembered as a as a hooker, but he was probably one of the toughest lucids that I ever scrummed against um, in my career. I would I would definitely say, and then mostly from my the way that I scrummed, you know, the hookers was also quite. It's it's more dependent on how strong a hooker is. Um, and, you know, I really rated uh, guys like Chris Rousseau, um very highly, as, as well as a guy like Federico Mendes at, at, at hooker. And what are you up to these days? I don't play rugby anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so you know, when I finished playing at Saracens um, in 2009, I was very fortunate to have a, a great transition. Um, I joined the holding company of Saracens as commercial director, um, and there was a number of sports entities in that company. Um, and I was also scrum coach for you know, utilize a scrum coach for a couple of years. It was in the time that Sculpts and um, Ernst Jaber and uh, Jacques Berger and those guys joined, but also you know under the the the, the coaching management of of Bremen Fenter. And that was a that was a great transition. But I, I mean, my ambition was always to do business, and so in 2011 I I, I left them. I joined a private merchant bank, and a year later I had a vision to start my own company called Africa Merchant Capital. Um, it's a private merchant bank operating in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, yeah, it's now 10 years later and the company is very successful and I've really enjoyed the, the journey. So I do business in the Anglophone countries of sub-Saharan Africa, investing and financing um, companies um, yeah, in the continent. Oh, that's great. Kubis, um, as we wrap up, it's time to take a look at that trivia question again from earlier. In 2005, the Springboks scored a record win by 134 points to three. Who were the opponents that day? Do you know the answer, Corvus? I would, I would lie if I say, but I, I'll, I'll have to go with something like uh, Tonga. 
It's not a bad guess. Uh, the correct answer actually is an opponent that uh, we came up against at the 1999 Rugby World Cup, Uruguay. Tonberai Chavanga scored six tries that day against the Uruguayans. Uh, so yeah, a big 134-3 win in East London actually. Uh, Quivis, um let me say thank you very, very much for being available. It was lovely having you on Front Row Rugby today and hopefully we can have you on again in the future. Thank you, Peter. I'll try not to be as serious the next time. No, I think it was fascinating. I think some of those stories, a lot of people just don't know that stuff. And, uh, you know, that's that's what we want to do. We want to have the legends and the heroes on this show. And we want to hear interesting uh, conversations. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you for having me, Peter. Last time on Front Row Rugby, former Springbok wing Dean Hall was my guest. You can go and have a look at that video. It's appearing on the screen right now. Next time, 1995 Rugby World Cup winner Robbie Brink will be here. Thank you so much for watching. If you enjoyed that video, why not spear tackle the like button? You can also subscribe and hit the notification bell so you don't miss any content from Front Row Rugby. See you next time.